Hello, and welcome to Fresh Fusion, a weekly show where we discuss the business, the art, the ethics of content creation on the open web, and the Fediverse. My name is Jared White, and this is episode 109, Sneak Preview of the Internet Reviewed, Push Technology in the 90s. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of Fresh Fusion. We have a lot to get through today, a lot, a lot, a lot. of. So uh, there won't be a Fusion Plus segment for Intuitive Plus subscribers. Y'all are getting the same episode because we just... We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> a lot of fun stuff. A lot of fun stuff. Uh, so, yeah, let's just jump right into it. Happy Fediverse Day! <laughs> yes, uh, this happened last week on January 23rd, 2018. The World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, gave their official recommendation of ActivityPub. That's right, ActivityPub became an official recommendation of the W3C on January 23rd, 2018. So that date has uh, sort of turned into a bit of a tradition now to celebrate the Fediverse. <laughs> every, every, uh, every major community movement happening in the world of humans needs a celebration, right? A holiday. Uh, so we got ours. We got our Fediverse Day. You know, this is fun because on the one hand, it feels like the Fediverse Activity Pub, using Mastodon, using all these other different services that are out there now, has been around quite a while. Uh, but when you think about it, this we're, we're only a few years into this revolution. We're really only a few years into this. And I remember first getting into Mastodon uh, during the first wave of attention it got in 2018 and 2019. That's when you first started seeing a, a wave of, of nerds fed up with Twitter for one reason or another, uh, trying out an alternative like Mastodon. And I was super bummed when a lot of those folks ended up leaving again. A lot of the servers, a lot of the instances that started up got shut down. I regret to inform you, I was one of those people. Eventually, I was like, ah, it's turning into a ghost town. I'm gone. So I shut down my little instance, openweb.social, and I left. But thank goodness, thank goodness in 2022, I was able to join the Fediverse again by signing into indieweb.social a wonderful instance that uh, I can highly recommend. Uh, and I've been there ever since. So yeah, this past uh, November, I believe, was like the one year anniversary of Elon Musk officially taking over Twitter. Um, so yeah, I, I I had already been on Mastodon prior to the, uh, the takeover by Elon. But uh, uh, yeah, I was I was all ready to go <laughs> once that happened, and so yeah, I uh, I've been uh, coming up on two years now, I think, uh, an active member of the Fediverse, and as excited about it as I've ever been, if not more so. Yeah. Another interesting bit of Fediverse news here: uh, we have a graph that Benty Gorlick put together 
of uh, essentially an instance distribution of the top 100 Fediverse accounts. Uh, in other words, he looked at what appeared to be the top 100 accounts in the Fediverse, if you look at follower account. And, and I've links in the show notes to all this stuff. Uh, a lot of these stats come from FediDB, which is built and maintained by PixelFed. Uh, so, so looking at those stats, uh, he put together a chart here showing uh, which instances house uh, these, these various accounts and, and kind of a way to rank those in a pie chart. So looking at this pie chart, you can clearly see that Mastodon.social is pretty massive, right? A lot of the top accounts in the Fediverse by follower count are uh, hosted at Mastodon.social. Not a huge surprise there because Mastodon.social is definitely the largest Fediverse instance by far, has hundreds of thousands of users still growing, and... uh, you know, a lot of folks just kind of pick that as a default. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I'll, I'll speak a little bit more to that in a moment. Um, but if we look at the rest of the distribution, it's interesting that no one other instance kind of stands out. Like you can look at certain ones like infosec.exchange or mstdn.social, uh, tapbots.social, mastodon.world, hackaderm.io. Like there's a bunch that have a bit of a chunk in the pie, but it it really is quite the distribution. And I think we're going to continue to see this as the Fediverse grows. And I've mentioned this before. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. You're going to see a few large instances. You're going to see Mastodon.social. You're going to see threads. You're going to see, you know, a handful of services out there that are well-marketed, well-funded, capture a lot of market share. But the Fediverse is diverse. It's decentralized for a reason. And so you have this long tail of all these other services, all these other instances, and and that's what you want, right? Like you want, you know, 30, 40, maybe even 50% of the total dominated by handful of players and then a huge long tail for the rest of it that that's what you expect to see i think it's naive if someone is thinking they should look at a pie chart and just be like oh there's a little slice here and a little slice there and a little slice here and a little slice there and it's even right like there's across thousands of instances around the world it's sort of an even distribution of of major accounts I I think that's quite naive. You don't see those market dynamics anywhere else, right? Like you look at you look at email, you look at internet service providers, you look at streaming services. You look at all of these different sort of uh, marketplaces, if you will. Uh, you look at retail right? in a variety of ways. You look at fast food. Anywhere you go, you see. Uh, you know, a few dominant players, and then a lot of smaller players. And and that's that's just marketplace dynamics at work. And I don't think we should expect to see anything different here. Um, the fear, of course, is that if one instance dominates over all the others, whether that's Mastodon.social or Threads or what have you, they can start dictating the terms of the marketplace, right? They can use their monopoly power to... 
start telling other folks how to run things or start, you know, dictating here's how the spec's going to evolve in the future and you have to support our spec, whatever. So that that's the fear, and I understand that fear. But, you know, as it, as it is with many other standards bodies, as it is with how the web itself has evolved over the last 30 years, there are processes in place here. And while dominant players can wield influence, they can't wield all the influence. And the, the more they try to muscle their way into making things happen, the more folks will reject that. I mean, look at Google and AMP. Google <laughs> tried to remake the web using AMP technology and tried to shove AMP down everyone's throats, and they failed. And that was a good thing. It was good that they failed, because people did not like AMP, people did not want AMP, and Google was unsuccessful in shoving AMP down everyone's throats and making all the web turn into serving up AMP instead of real web pages. And so I think we'll see a similar thing here. You know, if, if, if threads or unlikely but possible mastodon.social start saying, you know, well, here's how we're going to use ActivityPub and here's how we think Federation should work and this is what we're doing, get on board. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. I just don't think that's going to be how it turns out. I think we're going to continue to see uh, a healthy mix of, of instances, of players, of folks proposing extensions to ActivityPub and you know, related kind of specs. I think we'll continue to see uh, a healthy and diverse ecosystem for a long time to come. But it's really fascinating to look at this pie chart. I definitely encourage you to look in the show notes for links to that and uh, see for yourself how that all shakes out. All right, just another brief note here before we get on to today's main topic. Uh, It is Vision Pro Day. It is Vision Pro uh, embargo on reviews lifted day. (laughs) Got to workshop that. But uh, yeah, uh, today as I record this, Tuesday, January 30th, uh, all the reviews are coming out of, of folks, you know, like Neelai Patel at The Verge, like Joanna Stern at Wall Street Journal, a bunch of folks, MKBHD, uh, they're all talking about Vision Pro. They're all reviewing Vision Pro or at least giving their initial thoughts. Uh, I haven't had time to dig into all of the content that's out there now. Uh, I mainly just watched Joanna Stern's excellent overview of Vision Pro for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, You can watch the video, the YouTube video of that. Uh, And yeah, uh, a theme that does start to seem to emerge here as you browse around is kind of what everyone has been saying, what everyone's been expecting, which is technology is cool. This technology is really whiz-bang and fancy pants and, and exciting and cool. But why? Why do we need this in our lives? Why is it worth paying $3,500 right now? Like, you know, what's the killer app here? What's the purpose? What use case use cases does this headset serve? You know, that it's like you can't do that any at any other time. Um, you know, it was much clearer in the past, I think, uh, when, when Apple came out with iPhone. Apple didn't have any phone. And the phone that they came out with had a number of advances that no other cell phone really had at the time. 
hence its popularity right out of the gate. Uh, when Apple came out with iPad, you know, certainly there were other tablet computers out in the marketplace, but uh, iPad directly leveraged the success of iPhone and, again, kind of was a new take on how to use a tablet. You know, you didn't need a stylus. It wasn't some fiddly desktop OS morphed into supporting tablet form factor. It was, it was a true tablet OS experience. Uh, so, you know, I think there was a, a lot of buzz around the iPad right away and clear reasons why you'd want to get an iPad. Apple Watch, again, you know, <laughs> Apple Watch having a having a little wrist computer gave you a number of benefits you couldn't get from an iPhone, couldn't get from an iPad, couldn't get from a Mac, and the other smart watches out at the time. Apple Watch came out were pretty janky and geeky. Uh, this was a huge improvement, and Apple Watch has been you know, modest success, maybe not like world changing in some particular way, but a modest success for Apple. Uh, So we get to Vision Pro and it's like, well, what can you do on Vision Pro that's so great that you can't do on an iPhone and you can't do on an iPad and you can't do with a Mac and you can't do with an Apple Watch and you can't do with competing products really? Like, what what is this? And so I think it ultimately boils down to spatial computing. How how exciting, how useful is spatial computing as a metaphor, as a platform, if you will? Like, what, what does spatial computing unlock? And so that question so far seems to be unclear. Yes, it's very cool. It's very whiz-bang. Um, but why is spatial computing the future remains to be seen. But nevertheless, I'm excited to dig into all these different reviews, and I definitely want to try one out soon. I definitely want to head over to the Apple Store and try to set up an appointment to, to try it out and, and get that experience. I'm very curious what that's like. You know, folks who have tried it kind of describe that initial experience with it as, as pretty magical, you know, even if over time they're, they're wondering, you know, what they can really do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so... You know, it seems cool. It seems cool. All right, with all that out of the way, we get on to today's main topic. I thought it would be fun to give you a little bit of a sneak preview of the kind of content that will be in the new podcast I'm going to be starting up called The Internet Reviewed. Now, for reference, I talked about this a few episodes back uh, that I was uh, working on an archive site uh, called the Internet Review. Uh, Essentially, this site would be an archive of all of the technology blogging I had done on various blogs in various guises over many decades, going all the way back to, if you can believe this, 1996. (laughs) Yes, I started technology blogging in 1996. Wow. So... This has never been done. I've never had a complete archive anywhere publicly. I've never kind of merged all of the various sites that I started and abandoned. <laughs> I've never had it all in one place, and particularly in a place that's continuing, because it's not just going to be an archive. I'm going to have new content coming out regularly on this reboot of the Internet Review. And as a companion to the Internet Review, I'm going to have a podcast exclusively for Intuitive Plus members. So uh, you might want to get on that. But um, yes, exclusively 
for members of Intuitive Plus, I will be releasing a podcast called The Internet Reviewed. And in this podcast, uh, each episode, I will look back at a particular article I wrote uh, about a particular moment in, in time for technology, you know, particular uh, event or particular, uh, you know, development that uh, either, either was successful and exciting that we can now look back in hindsight and discuss, uh, or failures too. And uh, in a way, today's sneak preview is going to be about some failures, as well as the eventual success of, of what it is. So what am I talking about? What is today's sneak preview of the internet reviewed all about? It's about a term that sounds completely boring now and nobody really knows what you're talking about. But back in the 90s, this was big. This was big. This was potentially the next big thing for the web. And the web was pretty new already, but if you thought the web, which was pretty new, was cool, wait till you see this. This is the next big thing. And that is push technology. Push technology. <laughs> what is that? What is push technology? Well, if you think about the web, and in many respects, this is still how you think about the web, but particularly in the 90s, when you thought about the web, uh, the web was about intentionally going somewhere and and getting something, you know, downloading something. You go to yahoo.com and you download the web page and you read it, right? It's this, it's this request and response. The web was built on request and response. You make a request, you get a response. And, you know, we still do that today. By and large, that's what the web is, request and response. You request Amazon.com, you get a response. That's the web page showing a bunch of products to buy. You click on a product, that's a request. You see the product appear as a new web page. That's the response. Request, response. Push technology was the inverse of that. The server, the server somewhere, some, some special push-enabled server somewhere, makes the request to you, to your client, and your client responds, okay, <laughs> I've received your information. And, and you as the user see that information as it comes in. So a server is pushing information down to you, and you see that information as soon as the server sends it. And obviously, if you think about things like, you know, up-to-date news, uh, latest bulletins about whatever, stock prices, <laughs> weather, like all these different updates and, and, you know, new messages coming in from whoever, uh, all of that is push technology. And the analogy to that today might be, say, notifications and widgets and these sort of at-a-glance things where, where you're receiving information passively. You're, you're not making a request. You're getting the request from the server that is sending you information and, you know, that, that information gets displayed right away. Um, so there, there wasn't anything like that in the early days of the web. There, there weren't notifications. There, there wasn't up-to-date news. There weren't feeds. There weren't news feeds, 
right? There, there wasn't social media feeds. Uh, everything was, was, you know, I type in a URL, I see something. I click something, I see something. I click another thing, I see this other thing. Uh, so push technology was going to invert that. But the question is, who is going to invent push technology? Who is going to own push technology? Who is going to control this? How would it be displayed? How would it be used? You know, would it be something cross-platform? Would it be built into an operating system? There were a lot of questions around what push technology would be and who would control it. And as you might imagine, since this is the 90s, <laughs> by and large, push technology would either be controlled and dictated by Netscape or Microsoft. Yes, this, this was part of the Netscape versus Microsoft dynamic. Uh, people nowadays look back and think Netscape versus Microsoft was all about the browser, all about the web browser. Are you going to use Netscape Navigator or later Netscape Communicator, as people might have thought of it? Are you going to use that, or are you going to use Internet Explorer? Netscape Navigator versus Internet Explorer. However, that wasn't even what those dominant players were thinking about much (laughs) by the time you get to the late 90s. They were already ready to move on. It wasn't just about the web browser. It was about push technology. Uh, Now, before I get into all of that specifically, I want to mention a couple of other purveyors of push technology. At least that was the claim. It never really got off the ground. Um, But I want to first mention Marimba because I wrote about Marimba on the Internet Review back in 1996. I have a link in the show notes to that original article, (laughs) uh, courtesy of the Internet Archive. Um, Now, I'll, I'll have this reposted on, on my new site, the Internet Review, once that's ready to go. But for now, I'll just link you to that original archived page. Uh, but I wrote about Marimba. Uh, they, they were a new company, a new startup uh, with a, a suite of products they called Castanet, <laughs> which I think is a great name, Marimba Castanet. Uh, I, the branding there probably better than any of the actual technology. <laughs> I'm kind of sad now that Marimba and Castanet uh, never went anywhere because I, I, I just, I love that branding. I think it sounds really fun and really clever. Uh, but yeah, Marimba Castanet was essentially a way to, you know, pull up your web browser, say Netscape, and launch what was a Java applet an application written in Java that could be launched directly from the web browser. And once you downloaded and launched this Java applet, you could install various channels. You would get these channels. This was called a tuner. (laughs) But yes, they were very heavily borrowing from from television uh, parlance here. But uh, this application, which they called a tuner, uh, you would uh, install various channels, and then these channels could essentially... uh, push information to you regularly, right? Whenever there was an update from the server, you would get pushed this new information, whatever that is. Uh, news feeds, uh, stock prices, you know, message notifications, what, whatever the sorts of things were that you wanted to, to tune into, all the stuff would get pushed to you. You wouldn't have to do anything, right? You wouldn't have to like click refresh or, or you know, fiddle with settings of any kind. All the stuff would just come to you. You would always have this at a glance up-to-date display of a bunch of different stuff. 
Um, and they claim to be, you know, building on top of open standards at the time. But let's face it, right? This this was not the web. This was a whole different thing that was trying to be bolted onto the web. And so ultimately, this marimba castanet stuff just didn't go anywhere. Um, there was another company at the time, which I don't remember, and I still don't know much about, but it was called Pointcast. And apparently Pointcast made a big splash and kind of was was sort of the beginning wave of hype around push technology. Uh, but all Pointcast did, from what I can tell, is come out with a screensaver. And this screensaver essentially would push a bunch of new information to you regularly. Um, and that didn't go anywhere because uh, the way it utilized your network was really questionable and the bandwidth was just choking everyone out it was choking servers it was choking firewalls it was choking your computer just it was way too much bandwidth use to have all this push uh, networking stuff going on so so everyone said nope and disabled it and so point cast never went anywhere all right so that brings us to netscape and microsoft so i remember this i actually remember this uh, netscape announced what they first called Constellation. That was the code name, but then they changed Constellation to Netcaster. And Netcaster was was another way of enabling push information. Um, the thing that made Netcaster particularly interesting was uh, there was a way to essentially load up all of their... Um, I don't remember what they were called. I don't know if they're also called channels or, or what have you, but... Uh, there is a way to load up these different uh, sources of information through Netscape's push technology uh, directly on your desktop. You could essentially create a web desktop, which was dubbed a web top. I remember trying out Netscape's web top, and it was really exciting. It, basically, think of like widgets. Think of web-powered widgets. Uh, the The... You know, the, the thing that Apple came out with eventually, Mac OS X, a dashboard where you had all these widgets built with web technology, uh, that very much seemed like another incarnation of this web top concept. Uh, and I'm kind of sad even now that dashboard, you know, eventually kind of faded from view, faded from use, because, uh, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by this web top idea. And it first started here with Netscape Netcaster. I remember trying out Netcaster in this web top feature when it was in beta and sending a long detailed message directly to Netscape like, hey, I have some feedback. This is really cool, but it'd be really cool if you could do this and this and if it could work like this and you really need to do that. And and I remember describing to them, you know, essentially what we'd see later with with desktop widgets, with dashboard, with things like that. Like I really wanted to them to lean heavily into this stuff. Um, but unfortunately, because Netscape was so screwed up as a company and they were so uh, you know, locked in this existential struggle uh, against Microsoft, uh, it, it, you know, th this was a feature that didn't go anywhere. It just didn't go anywhere. You know, they, they eventually were trying to even keep their browser alive, keep their server web server technology alive for enterprises where they can make real money. Uh, but none of that worked out in the end. So unfortunately, Netcaster and WebTop and all that stuff just 
never went anywhere. Um, one funny thing, though, the person that was uh, in charge of of managing and rolling out a bunch of this Netcaster technology at Netscape was a fellow named Mike McHugh. And if the name Mike McHugh sounds familiar, yes, it's the Mike McHugh of Flipboard, <laughs> who is very heavily involved in the Fediverse now, who has a whole wonderful podcast where he's interviewing people talking about the Fediverse. So tracing that line from Netscape push technology in the 90s to Fediverse activity today and the Flipboard company, very interesting. Very interesting. All right, so that's what Netscape was up to. Now, what was Microsoft up to? Well, as you can expect, (laughs) Microsoft was doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff. So, you know, it was 1996, 1997. uh, Microsoft was hard at work on what would become Windows 98, the successor to Windows 95. And the thing they wanted to do with Windows 98 was make everything about the web. They they went nuts. If you think about Microsoft today going nuts with AI and Copilot, this was the same thing but for the web. They wanted the web to be in everything. They they went from, you know, early to mid 90s getting caught flat-footed by the internet, getting caught flat-footed by the web and then kind of did this famous pivot cuz Bill Gates was like, I've seen the light. I have seen the light, my friends, and everything's going to be about the internet. Everything's going to be about the web. Of course, Microsoft was going to follow their playbook of uh, EEE, embrace, extend, and extinguish. (laughs) Uh, So they embraced the web and then immediately started extending it with all its proprietary stuff. Uh, If you can remember ActiveX... Essentially, ActiveX was Microsoft's answer to Java applets. Instead of going to a web page and loading a Java applet, you would go to a web page and load an ActiveX plugin. And this ActiveX plugin could be any number of things, you know, from video players to full-fledged applications running right inside your web browser. And using ActiveX, they also went the opposite direction. You could essentially embed web technology in any number of parts of the operating system. And the the most intriguing aspect of this was what they called Active Desktop. Active Desktop essentially was a way to embed the web right into your desktop. So instead of loading Internet Explorer and typing whatever.com and, you know, and then seeing that web page there in your web browser, with Active Desktop, you could just stick web pages right onto your desktop. You could just stick web content right into the Windows desktop, and it would just stay there as persistent views into whatever you want. And they then built on top of this, you know, not just static web pages to look at, but what they called channels. So you could, again, tune into channels or whatever the parlance is there, Uh, right there on your active desktop. And they actually created their own format for this called the Channel Definition Format, or CDF, and they attempted to get this adopted by the W3C. So that that part of it was interesting, I guess. Uh, XML was just on the horizon at this time, so CDF was an early XML-based format, and I think Microsoft hoped that if, if they could get, you know, their 
push technology in the form of CDF uh, embraced by the W3C, then they would win, right? Everyone else would have to use CDF if they wanted to compete with Active Desktop, and, uh, and thus Microsoft essentially would win. As we all know, <laughs> this never happened, but this, this was what they were trying to do. And I want to read a quote from a Wired article. Again, all these links are in the show notes. Uh, a Wired article at this time, uh, where it's comparing Active Desktop to Castanet and the kind of stuff that they're doing along with Netscape. Uh, and this is just bonkers to think about, right? This is bonkers. <laughs> so here's the quote. Even if it's true that Castanet is a better technology, that may not be enough. Thomas Reardon program manager for Microsoft's Internet and Platform Tools division, also believes the net will start looking a lot more visual and interactive, a lot more like TV. And Microsoft, he asserts, not Marimba, will lead the way. Quote, ActiveX will rid the world of the browser. The desktop becomes the browser. I'm, I'm going to read this quote to you again because it's just wild to think about now. ActiveX will rid the world of the browser. The desktop becomes the browser. So you, you, you hear a quote like this, and you think back to the late 90s, and you remember that Microsoft, like, Microsoft wasn't just trying to kill Netscape with their Internet Explorer browser. They were just trying to kill the browser outright, right? They wanted to bring the entire internet into Windows and have Windows and the Windows desktop be the interface that gets you onto the web, right? It it wasn't the later era of, you know, you pull up your web browser and you go to google.com. You pull up your web browser and you go to amazon.com. It wasn't all the dot coms that people would know about and and they would just kind of live in their web browser all the time going to all these big internet destinations. We weren't quite there yet. This was all so new. So Microsoft was trying to make a land grab and get everyone thinking, oh no, it's not about pulling up a web browser and going to websites out there. It's just just use your operating system. All of this internet technology will just be bundled in and integrated into the operating system, even to the point where you pull up your file manager and your file manager would be showing you embedded web pages that are like these new views into your files. Like it was just web technology everywhere, but, but Microsoftified with <laughs> all this ActiveX stuff. Well, if you're wondering to yourself, well, how come Microsoft didn't succeed in this? How come they didn't win? And I think the answer is relatively simple. Viruses. Bloop, bloop, bloop. I'm recording this after uh, finishing recording the episode and starting to listen back uh, because while editing, I realized there was another reason, another big reason, and that was the DOJ suing Microsoft and forcing them to essentially unbundle Internet Explorer and allow competing browsers, you know, equal access to Windows customers. Uh, So this changed a lot of Microsoft's strategy. But I still think that security had a big effect on this whole concept as well. Uh, So, yeah, just wanted to mention all that. And back to the episode now. Viruses, worms, Trojan horses... You know, there were already 
alarming security issues with Windows 95. <laughs> you know, it, it was an increasing attack vector. But when they started doing all this ActiveX stuff, it became a nightmare. It was a security nightmare. Like, you, like, <laughs> if you had a Windows PC and you just, like, plugged into the internet and you weren't using, like, all kinds of strict, you know, antivirus software and firewalls and this and that, your, your PC would just get hacked. It would just get hacked. Like, it, it was only a matter of time. Like, if you have a PC connected to the internet in a sort of naked way, it was only a matter of time before your PC got hacked and it became part of a botnet or you had viruses or ransomware, you know, email attachments that would take over your whole computer, you know, dot exe literally became sort of a metaphor for like, oh my God, something terrible is about to happen. You just, you just downloaded a dot exe and you don't know where that came from. Um, and ActiveX became a huge vector of, of security breaches. Uh, you know, they would try to even do things to, you know, encourage you to download this new ActiveX control to run whatever. And that seemed innocuous. But then now that ActiveX control itself was either a virus or enabled other viruses. It was just, it was a nightmare, right? So slowly Microsoft had to back out of all of that stuff. They had to back out of just pretty much this entire vision of the web's just your OS and your OS is the web and it's all connected. And the web retreated, for better or for worse, back into the web browser. And that's essentially what we have still today in a way, right? Like the web, quote unquote, is what happens inside of your web browser. Now, what we eventually got was, you know, native apps, quote unquote, uh, you know, using HTTP, using JSON or XML or whatever under the hood to enable networked experiences. So, you know, if you pull up Instagram on your phone, that's a native app, but it's using web technology under the hood to, you know, enable its functionality. And so you can use that native app or you can use, you know, just Instagram.com in your web browser uh, and those are two different ways of interacting with web content. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very different world now that we live in <laughs> than uh, you know the world before, right? You can't just you can't just slap the web quote unquote onto your desktop and have the web interact with your local files and launch programs and do all these different things, right? Everything is very carefully sandboxed. The web is a very carefully sandboxed environment. You know, we don't use Java applets anymore. We don't use ActiveX, right? Like everything that that gets run on the web, even even compiled web assembly code, right? It's all very carefully sandboxed because we know now that just Plugging your computer into the internet without any safety controls is a recipe for utter disaster. So ultimately, this is what happened with push technology. Whether you look at Active Desktop, whether you look at Netscape Netcaster, any of these other things, uh, you know, it, none of that went anywhere because it just wasn't the right take on things. Now, we do still have remnants of what might be called push technology 
in the sense that, you know, if you pull up a web page in your web browser, there are ways for that web server to send you push information uh, that, you know, this is how you know, Slack works, right? This is how Discord works. This is how a lot of, a lot of real-time apps work in your web browsers because the web browser does have technology in it that allows the server to push information regularly to you. But that's that's more of a web developer thing, right? You as the end user don't need to know how any of that works. All you know is that you don't have to click refresh <laughs> to see new chat messages. They just appear when they need to. The most user-visible sort of technology that would evolve out of some of this stuff, right? Like if you think of channels, if you think of subscribing to feeds, you probably start thinking, well, wait a minute. I know all about subscribing to feeds. It's called RSS. And yes, a lot of these concepts did eventually get folded into what became RSS. Uh, when Dave Weiner first worked on RSS, and that was an XML format, right? It wasn't it wasn't CDF. It was something different. But you know, when he worked on RSS, uh, it was a way to have information pushed, if you will, to you. However, it, it wasn't literal push technology. It was web syndication technology, but it wasn't push technology because you still have to pull, right? If you're using an RSS newsfeed reader that newsfeed reader still has to connect to web servers and say, hey, give me the latest version of the feed. And, you know, typically that's on some kind of schedule, right? Like every X minutes, uh, pull the server and say, hey, is there a newer version of the feed? And if so, it can download that. So it's still using standard request response technology, nothing fancy there. Uh, And, you know, ultimately what we really got was... Um, centralized services that would pull all the feeds and do that for you, right? Like I use Feedbin, for example, and, you know, I don't have Feedbin on each of my devices saying like, hey, I need to check all the news feeds. I need to download all the news feeds. Feedbin's centralized service handles all of that. So there, you know, so if 100,000 people subscribe to the same news feed, there aren't 100,000 separate downloads of those news feeds happening. Feedbin can download that feed once, and then it knows that 100,000 Feedbin users have subscribed to that feed, so they all get the updates, um, but they aren't all separately downloading 100,000 RSS feeds. Uh, so, yeah, so there's there's ways to optimize this. But essentially, RSS is just standard, you know, here's a file, download it. Uh, so in that respect, it's very much old school web. Uh, and it turns out that's all we needed. That's all we needed. <laughs> and look, like so many companies, so many <laughs> internet trends have tried to kill off RSS and they haven't done it. They haven't killed it off. And in fact, RSS is alive and well, and it also became the podcasting industry. <laughs> yes. The entire podcasting industry, with the exception of the what are not really podcasts exclusives you might find on Spotify or whatever. Uh, but setting that aside, like the entire podcasting industry is built around RSS. And RSS is an evolution of these early attempts at push technology. So this this is why I'm so excited about, you know, 
getting this new show started, the internet reviewed, and looking back at these old developments, because so much of the time, even when you look back at old developments many, many, many years ago, uh, you, you know, you can look at these failures and say, well, yeah, that particular incarnation of that particular type of technology failed. It was an epic failure, but it eventually evolved into this. And this, that it eventually evolved into, is awesome. So I love thinking about this history and, and drawing these little wavy lines from point A all the way in the past to point B right now. And I'll end with this, because this is yet another bizarre connection, which I didn't even realize until very recently. Uh, so apologies for the additional nerd talk here, but... Uh, what people call RSS is really two different formats. There, there is the RSS format, but there's also the Atom format, A-T-O-M. And, and basically, web servers and newsfeed readers and whatever use RSS and Atom interchangeably. They're both supported widely everywhere. Uh, so kind of in the broader sense, everyone just still uses the term RSS. Um, but whether you're supplying RSS literally as uh, the format for your news feeds or Atom, uh, it's fine because everyone supports both. Um, but in the early 2000s, the thought was that Atom would replace RSS, that Atom was, was an evolution from RSS. Uh, people were frustrated that RSS had limitations and was kind of in a state of feature lock, right? Like, like Dave Weiner and, and folks... Uh, influencing RSS got to a certain point and then stopped and said, you know, this is it. This is the format. If you want to do anything different down the road, essentially invent your own formats or your own extensions to RSS using, you know, XML namespaces, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so some folks got together and decided to, to try coming up with a newer format, which eventually became Atom. And the person who kicked that all off is a fellow named Sam Ruby. And fun fact... I have worked with Sam Ruby <laughs> in recent times. Uh, I became a contributor to an open source uh, software development project called Ruby to JS. Now that Ruby's talking about the Ruby programming language, no relation to Sam Ruby, the person. Uh, but anyway, uh, Sam Ruby was a maintainer of Ruby to JS, this open source software project. And uh, I started to contribute to that and became a maintainer of that and worked a bit with Sam Ruby. Uh, and I had no idea at that time <laughs> that Sam Ruby kicked off the, the project to develop Atom. So how wild is that? How wild is that? Um, this is something I love about being part of sort of the, the, the inside baseball of, of the web, uh, looking at how the sausage is made. You would be shocked how few people, like numerically speaking, how few people make everything possible. Like you look into web standards, you look into how the Fediverse arose, you look into all of these different things, the development of features in CSS, you know, what we're talking about here with push technology. Like you look into all these different things and you realize, wow, the number of people who make all of this possible who help develop and promote technology that ends up used by millions of people. Like it's, it's not a lot of folks. It's actually a pretty small community at the end of the day. 
it's you know and often it's just someone coming along and saying like hey i have an idea i have an idea for this new feature i have an idea for this new spec i have this idea for an update to the spec and some folks talk about it and they argue and they discuss and they discuss and they argue and then someone else comes along and it's like well that's interesting but i have this even better idea and then they discuss and then they argue and then eventually something rolls out and maybe it will fail. But often, it succeeds. And then it ends up getting used by millions of people around the world. And it's a key part of, of the overall technology stack. And I just love this. I just love this. this. This is what makes the internet so fun. You know, folks will look at the downsides of the internet and say, oh, man, it's a cesspool. It's awful. It's terrible. All these different things. And shitification, et cetera, et cetera. But the flip side to all this is, what other human endeavor can you point to besides the internet, the technology stacks underlying the internet and the World Wide Web? What else can you point to where a relatively small number of people can come together and work together to enable huge leaps forward, huge leaps forward in, in functionality, and capability. It's just amazing. It's amazing. You know, somebody invented HTML. Somebody invented CSS. Somebody invented RSS, right? Like these things don't just happen. Somebody has to have an idea and invent it, and it has to get rolled into this broader set of specifications and tools. And, you know, maybe that next person will be you. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Fresh Fusion and the sneak preview of The Internet Reviewed. As always, you can check out past episodes of Fresh Fusion by going to jaredwhite.com slash podcast. And you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, Creator Class, by going to jaredwhite.com slash creator dash class. I'll be back next time with much more about the Fediverse, about content creation, and about the open web. But until next time, bye-bye, everybody.